Well, welcome. Welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro. And in this episode, we are going to interview Gray Bassnight, the author of Flight of the Fox. I am joined by a co-pilot for this episode. My son, Nico, is here. How's it going, Nico? Um, pretty good. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to this interview with Gray. Um, you have not read Flight of the Fox yet, have you? No, I have not. Uh, it does have uh, some cryptography and other puzzle sort of uh, mathematics sort of things. And in fact, the main character is a math professor. So does that sound at all interesting to you? Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to check it out. Well, before we get to Gray, let's uh, take care of business here. Uh, Nico, since uh, you're along for the ride, maybe you can pull your own weight and uh, help pay the bills here. Go ahead and tell everybody who our sponsor is. Wrong Place, Right Crime is sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is an emerging publisher with a large catalog of crime fiction that tends to the darker, grittier end of the spectrum. You can see their many titles at downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Downandoutbooks.com. Take the journey with us. Yo, Frank, Eric Campbell, Down and Out Books. For the last month of the year, we have eight killer books coming out. Here's just a sampling of what's on that list. First up is Joe Clifford's incredible The One That Got Away. In the early 90s, a string of abductions rocked a small upstate New York town. Only one girl survived, Alex Salerno. The killer was sent away. Life returned to normal. No more girls would have to die until another one did. Paula Hawkins calls it a great book, an intelligent and astutely observed piece of American small town noir. We've also got a fantastic short story collection called Skin and Bones. This is dripping with some incredible authors, including Lawrence Block, Charles Arda, Bill Crowder, Stuart Neville, and Dave Zelserman, to name but just a few of the 19 contributors. The setup. From a host of best-selling and award-winning authors comes the stories from the darkest corners of their imaginations, featuring one of the most aberrant acts of mankind, cannibalism. These books are all available for pre-order now. Find out more at downandoutbooks.com. And Frank, as always, thanks so much for your support and asking me to come on the show. Let's uh, go ahead and jump into our conversation with Gray Bassnight, author of Flight of the Fox. Well, welcome to the show, Gray. Thank you so much, Frank. Uh, so, Flight of the Fox is the newest book. Let's just dive right into that. How would you, if you were going to put this in a genre, because it's it's published by Down Out Books, which is largely a, uh, a crime fiction, gritty, edgy crime fiction publisher, uh, but the jacket copy on this reads more like a uh, spy or political or military thriller. I've been describing it as a, a political run-for-your-life thriller. Uh, which is what it is. It's an alternate history borrowed from my love of Ken Follett, and at the same time, a run for your life borrowed from my fondness for Robert Ludlum and the whole Jason Bourne uh, franchise. It's um, similar in that, yes, there is a very smart man running for his life, uh, but it's much different from the Jason Bourne series and that this man is not a spy, not a police officer, not a black belt in karate, not a man who knows anything about guns. He's a mathematics professor. 
And <laughs> as a mathematics professor, he has one principal thing, well, two principal things going for him. One is his intelligence, and the other one is his will to live. It starts in upstate New York, in fact, in the town of Bethel, where the quite famous uh, Woodstock Rock Festival happened in August mm -hmm. 1965. And it proceeds from there to New York and then Washington, D.C., and then Key West. And he's one step ahead of a series of black ops teams that are trying to kill him for these mysterious reasons. And um, unlike Jason Bourne, he, he just has to maintain his composure and figure out who these people are and why they want to harm him and how he may be able to outsmart them without, in fact, knowing anything about guns or karate. So it's a little different approach. Um, I think so. I thought it would work well for the reader who may want to see something different in the run for your life category. Um, and I enjoy doing it because it's it's a little more heady, a little more intellectual, a little more fun for the reader to uh, see the central character figure out a way out of a particular crisis rather than just, uh, you know, pull out a gun or start chopping people or something, whatever it is. Would you say then that you're writing a protagonist who is clearly uh, closer to an everyman than a uh, a Bourne or a you know a James Bond or something along those lines? Uh, yes, in fact, that's my intention. I wanted him to be an everyman. He is not really uh, the the quintessential everyman because how many people are actual university mathematics professors? But because he's not a police officer or a spy or an, or an ex-military uh, whatever, um, he is an American, totally perplexed about why people are trying to kill him, and he's just trying to stay one step ahead of them. And, of course, he manages to do that through various means, and that's the fun part of the uh, series. Each case, when they get close to him, he uh, manages to escape by different means, and, and not in any case is there any gunplay going on, which is, uh, I think, uh, a part of the attraction at this point. It's certainly unique. I mean, uh, uh, you don't see a whole lot of uh, these types of books that don't involve uh, pretty extensive gunplay. Right. Sam Teagarden is the college professor. I wanted to have a unique uh, name that maybe smacked up some sort of uh, uh, pedigree, genealogical pedigree, but he's a nice guy, he's a smart man, and uh, along the way he figures out how to use the psychology of these uh, black ops hitmen um, to his own benefit so that it uh, kind of ricochets against their foolishness and their bureaucratic inclination to make mistakes. They are, by the way, um, I'm not revealing any uh, ending here, um, no, no spoiler alert, they are an, a black ops FBI team. Um, so the basic theory also touches base with um, collective paranoia about government overreach and things the government is doing that we don't know about. And in this case, the FBI is not supposed to have black ops teams and certainly not black ops hit teams, but in my novel, they do. Uh, even though Teagarden is a mathematics professor, it, it seems as if you've injected uh, some cryptography and other elements of spycraft into the book. Um, can you uh, talk about that? Yes, yeah, certainly. I wanted that to be a, a fun aspect for the reader. Um, my central character is a mathematics professor, but during his life, he's had some experience in encryption and decryption. And in fact, as a very young man, he worked in the encryption department for the CIA, but he hated it because it was so boring. And he discovers while he's on the run that there's this mysterious um, file in his email inbox, and he downloads it, and he sees that it's encoded. 
and because he has some experience in decoding, he manages to do so very slowly over a period of time, and he finds that it's a diary. And the diary is signed, every, every entry begins, Dear John, and every entry is signed, C-A-T, Cat. Now, this gets at the FBI from the very beginning in the 1930s through to the 1970s, because John is John Edgar Hoover, and Cat is Clyde Anderson Tolson, a real man who was the real number two of the FBI. And he was uh, J. Edgar Hoover's lifetime partner. And, um, and we, I think in, within the framework of the novel, he was his, uh, his uh, gay lover partner and also number two in the FBI. So the, the diary, fictitious, of course, is Clyde Anderson Tolson, Cat's means of ensuring that he'll never be dumped as number two and also never be dumped as the partner of um, the man he has spent his life with, John Edgar Hoover. But that's not the, the real issue here. The issue is what Clyde Anderson Tolson tangentially reveals in his passages to John over the years, starting in the mid-1930s all the way through to the 1970s. And what he unintentionally reveals, thinking that this diary will never be made public, is a number of... Uh, drastic crimes, indeed assassinations, or contributing to assassinations uh, committed by the FBI over those years. That's why the, uh, the Black Ops hit teams do not want this gentleman, this math mathematics professor, who's smart enough to know about decoding, to uh, release the document once it is decoded, because it would be a great embarrassment to the FBI. It's a story within a story you've got going on there. Yes. And as he gradually decodes it, I included some of the encrypted messages. And if readers care to try their hand, they can uh, try to decrypt it themselves. And if they don't care to, then Sam Teagarden goes through the process of gradually decrypting it for the reader, for himself as well, obviously. And they can see how he does it and uh, by what means he, he, he learns letter for number substitution and vice versa. Um, anyone who's ever played Scrabble knows certain basics, which is that the most used letter in the English alphabet is E, followed by A, and then it goes from there. C Conan Doyle's uh, wonderful adventure, one of the short story adventures of Sherlock Holmes, is called The Dancing Men, where they're not even numbers or letters. They're actual little figures of men in different positions. But, of course, those figures stand for letters and, and uh Mr. Holmes, being what he is, figures that out. And when I first read that at the age of about 13, it just thrilled me with delight. I just thought it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know how it is when you read something you just fall in love with um, during those intense reading years of your adolescence. It never goes away. It never leaves you. You love it for the rest of your life. Yeah, it's very formative. Uh, you So Flight of the Fox actually takes place uh, a year from the present Yes. In fact, um, in the summer of 2019, and I did that, um, well, the manuscript is now a number of years old, even though it was only just published in July of 2018. But I did that because there's another uh, key aspect that pins on history here, not just the history of the FBI, but the history of a local area where I'm lucky enough to have a house. And that's near Bethel, New York, where, uh, of course, the, the great Woodstock Rock Festival took place in August of 1969. So in the, in the novel, the 50th anniversary is coming up, and it is celebrated in the novel, as oh. it will be celebrated here in Bethel, New York in uh, 2019. 
Makes sense. So uh, we've been talking for about 10 minutes and I've heard a lot about history. And so <laughs> I, I get the feeling uh, uh, that you are a bit of a history buff. I like history. I like history a lot. And, and I like the idea of working it into fiction, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, I love Ken Follett in his earlier novels, um, Eye of the Needle and The Key to Rebecca. And when I was deciding to work on a thriller, I wanted to peg it to a, a history where I could sort of play with an alternate history. I've done a number of different genres, Frank. Uh, my first novel was a police procedural slash romance slash humor. Mm -hmm. And, and I, that wasn't intentional. It's just the way it came out. And it got really good reviews with a small pub house. My second novel was, a, was an actual historical set in Richmond, Virginia mm -hmm. during the uh, final days of the Civil War. And I'm a native of Richmond, so I know a great deal about that era. And I wanted to write about that and see if I could try my hand at a historical. And now I'm doing a thriller. And I also have finished um, a young adult that I'm trying to sell. So far, with not much success, but I'm sure it'll eventually find uh, the light of ink and air somewhere. So it's fun to explore more than just crime fiction, although mm -hmm. I'm, I'm loving the crime fiction that I'm writing. Well, let's talk a little bit about those other other books. The Civil War setting, uh, that would be Shadows of the Fire. Yes, sir. And uh, that that is set in the in April of 1865, right at the close of the Civil War, or at least the yes. official close of the Civil War. Um, some would argue it's still going on. It's true. Well, I heard someone on one of the news channels refer to it as a cold Civil War, and you and I both grew up in the in the Cold War era. Yes. And I just thought, what a clever phrase that is. We really do have a cold civil war going on here. But pardon me, I interrupted. Not at all. Uh, I think that that's a very accurate phrase. It really captures uh, the uh, polarization of the country right now. Uh, and certainly there was polarization in the 1860s and leading up to the 1860s. Uh, what's going on in Shadows of the Fire? Uh, April 1865 and what? Well, it takes place principally over three days when the city of Richmond falls as the capital of the Confederacy. Being a native Richmonder, I knew a great deal about this story. And uh, to my knowledge, it had never really been explored in fiction. Um, and even in the nonfiction books that are out there, they're not books that have a tremendous reach. And so I created this fictional account in the foreground of a couple of slaves, a 12-year-old slave girl and a 16-year-old slave boy, who witness all of the historically accurate, or 90% accurate, background material going on as Richmond fell to the Union Army. For example, here's some of the facts that I think are just fascinating and wonderful. The first um, contingent of Union troops that entered Richmond were black men serving the United States wearing Union blue. And the white officers chose that black brigade for intentional psychological value as a message to the white citizens of Richmond who led the seat of the government in this rebellion against the United States to destroy the United States for the purpose of preserving slavery in perpetuity. And that brigade of black men wearing Union blue um, did not do any harm. They absolutely did nothing but good. 
There was no battle. There were no shots fired. They marched into town. The city was on fire. They put out the fires. They restored order. They cleared the streets. They stood guard at the buildings of commerce and finance and business so as to try to get the city back on its feet in terms of the routine of commerce. And then on the third day, April the 4th, 1865, a man named Abraham Lincoln walked, literally walked into town. And uh, as he's walking, he had no business being there. The Union troops and officers didn't want him to go there because they said, there's a danger to your life. There are still snipers. You'll be shot. But he overruled them. He, he absolutely vetoed all concerns about his personal safety. And he walked through town, went up the hill past the Capitol building, and the slaves, newly freed, former slaves, now newly freed men, recognized him. And they mobbed him like a rock star. And he was so mobbed that um, the small contingent of Marines actually had to fix bayonet just to keep him in the center of a little tight redoubt there while, while he walked up the hill. And, and the crowds grew as he walked, and he went to the White House of the Confederacy. He went inside. He had a meeting with the officers who were managing the newly occupied city. He didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He didn't issue any orders. And then after a short while later, they had a carriage ready for him, and they whisked him out of town. I think that's just a magical story, and, and it, just, uh, it just takes my breath away to think about this wonderful man who was so emotionally involved in healing the United States that he, uh, he, he risked his life just to see this, have the satisfaction of seeing the uh, capital city of the enemy rebellion suppressed and in possession of uh, not only Union forces, but black men wearing Union blue. And uh, he wouldn't last the rest of the month before no. Ten days. assassinated. Yeah. Ten days later, he was assassinated. And so you, your protagonists see all of this happen. Yes, my 12-year-old slave girl and 60-year-old slave boy, they, they intend to get married as soon as the war is over, and they get separated in the chaos. And um, the 12-year-old girl is the central character. Her name is... Uh, Francine Pegram, Miss Francine Pegram, and she witnesses all of this. And, and as the uh, cover jacket uh, says, she goes from, over the course of three days, she goes from child to woman and, and chattel to citizen. And it's quite a journey. She actually sees Lincoln. And by the way, here's another interesting note. During this walk of Lincoln's through Richmond on the morning of April the 4th, 1865, his youngest son, Tad, was with him, standing right by his side. And it was, in fact, Tad's 12th birthday. Tad would uh, later pass away of um, an illness. I believe it might have been tuberculosis, but I'm not sure. But on that day, he was uh, holding hands with the sitting president of the United States. So in my fictional foreground, Miss Francine Pegram sees Tad, and, uh, and they walk together um, through Richmond. And uh, some wonderful things happen, and also some horrible things happen to this young 12-year-old girl, the central character, who is uh, a newly freed slave in Richmond, Virginia. So writing historical fiction, one of the things uh, that you run into, uh, you know, in, in addition to, to all the things socially that might be different, the social constructs and so forth, is the language was different. Uh, so when you wrote this book, did you, uh, did you write in updated language or did you uh, strive to write in the vernacular of the time. I've had a lot of comments about that by people who read it and they said you got the language so well and that's so, so accurate and it seems so authentic. I think all writers 
can say in some way, probably you can as well, that as early as five or six or, or grade school, you're listening more than most others and you're looking more than most other people. And if we're destined to become writers, having been a listener and, and having been someone who just watches, um, it pays off. It pays off later in life because you remember so much from childhood and adolescence. Well, and there, there's a certain amount of pleasure in, in, in reading uh, a book like like yours in that regard because it's it, the language becomes almost lyrical because it's different enough from what we speak each day uh, to have that quality, but it's close enough that we can understand it, you know, and so there, there, it takes on kind of an almost lyrical quality. I certainly hope so. I believe you're right, and and I hope, I I hope you're right as well. Um, the thing <laughs> is, I, I worry an awful lot about what's going on with the shorthand chat speak of all of the various social websites, um, which is why I I've never used an emoji in my life. I, I'd rather at least try to find three or four words just to write on these social websites, and it means I feel like we're losing something as generations are built upon future generations that we're going to lose this uh, this lyricism of the of the language um, e- even in the New York Times I've seen it happen over the years there used to be great reporters who had a, a, a utility with the language in their leads in their second paragraph that we're seeing less and less of today well now that uh, that is your professional background right is as, as a uh, as a journalist um, maybe you could give us a little bit of an idea of what uh, what your journalistic career was like. Oh, sure. I, uh, I originally moved from Richmond to New York City to be an actor. I was going to be a theater professor, and having planned to become a theater professor, I wanted to live the actor's life and just see how things went, and guess how things went, Frank? I waited for <laughs> I, I went to bar. I, I didn't starve, but I didn't have any money. And so I was lucky enough to get in with a very large radio station in New York City called WOR. And at the same time, I was taking some courses in journalism. And I managed to uh, work with some really terrific people at WOR. I spent nine years there and from there jumped to uh, freelancing in newsrooms, primarily radio, but also some television all over New York City. And I spent almost 30 years doing that. And I was a, a writer, uh, an editor, a producer. When I was laid off during the financial crisis, my title was reporter. Um, uh, briefly, a newscaster, and um, also all-purpose gopher of the hamburgers and the coffee. <laughs> but I went into journalism with gratitude and great enthusiasm, uh, turning my back on theater, because I wanted to be around the written word, and I wanted to be around reporters. And it was the one other thing I really loved. And the reason really why I didn't go into journalism a little earlier is because of something called Watergate. Every Everybody was majoring in journalism then, and it was impossible to get a mm-hmm. job. But mm-hmm. by the time I was moving and had this wonderful opportunity at WOR, by the time I was moving into newsrooms and, and trying to get a leg up uh, as a, a news person in broadcast news, um, a lot of that had died down, and I was doing uh, uh, much better and, and had some luck there with a great radio station where I worked with some great news people. Uh, I, I'm I'm very worried about the state of journalism and news reporting in general in this country. And I think it contributes to the divisiveness, just as I'm worried about the loss of uh, uh, love of the language and an articulate nature with the social websites. 
You see, the thing is, all three of these news networks are not really reporting the news. What they are doing is talking about the news. Mm-hmm. And, and if the FCC had any real teeth, it could force, I think, I'm not sure how it could go about doing it, but there must be a way to force these networks to, if they're going to call themselves news networks, force them to report the news at the very least in the way that the news talk format radio has been doing since the 1930s, which is at the top of every hour, you take five minutes, and maybe even at the top and bottom of every hour, you take uh, five or three minutes. And then the people who are talking about the news toss to a news anchor who says, basically, in Washington today, in Moscow today, on Wall Street, the Mets, the Yankees, the whatever, and here's a funny story about a puppy dog, and now we go back to the news talk program on the air. Mm-hmm. That would be uh, a news talk format, which is what radio has been doing since the 1930s. And that would at least be truth in advertising. A lot of people just, they don't go to, to the news to be informed. They go to the news to have their political views validated. Well, that's right. They go to the one um, news channel, the one cable news channel that reinforces their own beliefs and or biases. And um, that's the problem. Um, objective news reporting does still exist, but uh, it's increasingly less frequent and it's increasingly more of a struggle to try to find it. What we've got now is not really news and uh, it's doing harm. Well, we'll get back to our conversation with Gray Bass Knight in just a moment, but now is the time in the show where I like to consult the experts. And when I say experts, I mean bookstore owners, people who work at bookstores, particularly of the smaller independent variety, and uh, those that focus on mystery especially, uh, as well as other authors. Uh, Authors are a great source as to uh, what other authors you should be reading. Uh, So, Nico, who do we have this month? Uh, Well, we have Linda Bond from an independent bookstore in Spokane, Washington, and then Christopher Moore, our featured guest in episode 19. They're both giving us a book recommendation today. Well, hello. Uh, Welcome back, Linda. Hi, Frank. It's good to be here. Uh, You know, this time I've decided to talk about Dean Koontz's series, the the Jane Hawk series it's called. This is a female protagonist who's um, been on the run from the FBI, her job, because she's trying to track down this weird group of people in the country that have got something nefarious going on. And uh, she's kind of doing it on her own. And the first book, if people aren't following this, I don't know. The first one was Silent Corner, and then it came out with Whispering Room. And the third one that's out now is Crooked Staircase, and it continues her search for these people. This is one mean mama. So I think uh, people who like a strong female protagonist are going to love this one. Well, who doesn't? Yeah, well, there's probably some, but I don't think very many. Well, thanks for uh, the recommendation. Sure. Thanks for calling, Frank. Um, Hi, this is Christopher Moore, author of Lamb, A Dirty Job, and Noir. I'd like to recommend um, The Sommelier of Deformity by Nick Yetto. It's only been out a couple of months. He's a new author. And... uh, it just is so reminiscent of the character in A Confederacy of Dunces. And for so many years, I've heard people talk about how much they love that book. And so this is sort of a, a great 
anti-hero, self-loathing character, um, self-important character that really reminds me of Ig Ignatius C. Riley in, uh, or P. Riley in, uh, in uh, The Confederacy of Dunces. So Nick Yeto's uh, The Sommelier of Deformity. All right, well, there you have it, folks. A couple of recommendations for you to uh, take a look at. Nico, either one of those sound interesting to you? Well, they both sound pretty interesting. I'll definitely have to check them out. Meanwhile, how about we get back to our conversation with Gray Bass Knight? All right. How do you feel about alternate history? Is that something that you enjoy at all? Well, that's what I, I tried to do with the present novel, Flight of the Fox, and it is what I will do again with uh, the sequel, uh, where Sam Teagarden does make a return. Um, and yeah, I enjoyed it an awful lot, and, and I wanted to peg it to something that I thought might have uh, an interest for the readers in terms of a period in history where they know about and where they might have some in emotional connection with. In this case, it would be um, the FBI and the, and the assassinations of um, JFK, RFK, and uh, Martin Luther King, which is um, the central event in history where I'm pursuing an an alternate uh, turn of events. Um, I'll tell you the basis of it. Um, the, the idea is that there was a, uh, a team, a project, a program that consisted of recruiting marginal personality men, marginal schizophrenic men who could be easily motivated. In my conspiracy, the accused shooters are the shooters, but they were, uh, they thought they were doing uh, something for their country because they were basically marginal uh, borderline personality types and borderline schizophrenics. And so they were manipulated people uh, to uh, commit these horrible crimes. When you, you mentioned you're going to write a sequel to Flight of the Fox, um, will you be exploring more of these conspiracy theories in that then or, or going deeper on the ones that you touched on in the first book or different ones? It'll be a completely different format, but it'll still be political run for your life. Um, I'll clue you in on what I'm dealing with here. It's tentatively called um, Madness of the Q, meaning the letter Q. And I'm going to take Sam Teagarden in a completely different direction. There was, uh, originating in about 1900, a theory that um, formulated by biblical scholars, both mm -hmm. religious and non-religious scholars, that there had to be a source, a common source for much of what we have in uh, the gospel stories. And one of, the, one of the guys who posited the theory was a German guy, and the German word for source is quell, or quella, Q-U-E-L-L-E. And that, that came to be called the Q document. So in my uh, series, um, in pursuing alternate history, the Q document is actually discovered in um, the buried cellar of an ancient church in northern Israel. And when it's revealed to be the missing Q document for um, some of the stories in the Gospels, well, let's just say all hell breaks loose. That is a fascinating topic. Uh, I've, I've done some reading on that. It's uh, an area of history that interests me in that, uh, the fact that a lot of people aren't aware of this whole concept of a Q source and, and why people believe that... Uh, uh, you know, particularly the, the first two Gospels that were written uh, definitely drew from the same document. Uh, at least that's the theory. And, and 
boy, it seems like a pretty sound theory when you read about it. It makes a, a lot of sense. I, I agree with you. And I also have found this whole study quite fascinating. And um, I heard one professor say once that when you study the early century or two centuries of Christianity, if you are a person of devout faith, knowledge of the historical facts will enhance the faith and not challenge it or damage it or confront it or uh, accuse it of, of anything other than being your right to possess that faith. And uh, that taught me something. Um, you can pursue the actual facts within history um, and should be able to pursue the facts of studying Christianity uh, without any, any sense that you're actually violating anyone or anything. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a this is a podcast, uh, you know, about crime fiction and crime fiction authors, and I think Flight of the Fox, uh, uh, you know, can fit in that description. But you have another book that very definitely fits in that genre, uh, the Cop with the Pink Pistol, which is a great title. Uh, this is the one you alluded to earlier. That's kind of uh, it's got some humor in it. And so, how would you describe that? Um, police procedural mystery crime humor and romance and uh, it was my first uh, manuscript my first novel I really didn't know the rules the ins and outs about genre and not mixing genre Um, so I just did what popped out of the end of my fingertips and lo and behold it got published and uh, it even got great reviews in places like Kirkus and Library Journal it's um, it's about a Brooklyn Italian NYPD detective who um, a- abhors uh, conventional expressions of femininity. She doesn't do jewelry or makeup, but she does uh, keep a pink 38 snub nose uh, 38 strapped to her left ankle, and that is her one homage to femininity. She um, meets this Southern wasp. So here we have a. Um, and by the way, I am a Southern wasp, so I suppose you could say I'm, I'm in this novel. She is a Brooklyn Italian tough lady, a police detective, and, I, and she meets this Southern wasp who is an actor on a, on a soap opera in New York City. And they, the opposites attract, I suppose, and they, sparks fly and they hit it off, and lo and behold, the next thing you know, they're off uh, working on a couple of crimes in New York City. So there's a lot of humor there and some romance, and and it's definitely a crime novel as well. So I had a lot of fun with it. Did you adhere to the uh, the rules of uh, the romance genre? And- well, it's very interesting. I don't really know the rules of romance, um, and particularly not cozies, although I know that there's no violence, no sex, no naughty words, which cannot be said the same about the cop with the pink pistol. So maybe that... Uh, what's what's her name? I, I don't recall uh, from the... Her name is um, um, Donna Prima, Detective Donna Prima, and don't ever reverse her and say her last name first, because that'll really tick <laughs> her off. <laughs> remotely related to the great uh, big band jazz uh, uh, leader, um, um, Louis Prima, uh, who, of course, was um, an Italian uh, big band swing jazz band leader. And so Donna Prima is her name. She's from Brooklyn. And I really should write a sequel. Donna Prima needs to make a return. Well, that was going to be my question. I mean, I saw the uh, excerpts from the Library Journal and the Kirkus Review, um, from, from both of those reviews. And those are, I mean, you throw Publishers Weekly in there and you pretty much have a, would have a hat trick of the uh, some of the more prominent review uh, publications. And with that kind of a review... 
hey, why didn't you stick with the uh, multi-genre humor stuff? Did you just have other interests or, or what happened? I did, and I, and I continue to still have other interests. I, I want to explore other genres. I, I really want to see what maybe I'm really pretty good at or what might strike a chord with readers. And um, as we were talking earlier, you write because you have to, but that doesn't mean you don't want readers and you don't want success, and you, you wouldn't like it to have some some uh, commercial uh, return of uh, financial compensation. So I'm just kind of stretching and looking what else is out there. And, and I, as I mentioned, I do have a young adult. What's that about? Uh, my young adult is about a 15-year-old uh, girl in New York City who goes on adventures. And in my query letters to agents, I have occasionally used the expression, um, Nancy Drew meets Indiana Jones. To describe <laughs> she's uh, her, her adventures are anthropological and archaeological in nature she has a genius level iq but don't ever call her the g word because she doesn't like it she doesn't like to be singled out and um she's um, she lives with her single parent mom and by the way she's a junior her name is carolyn catherine benet jr and she's known as junior benet because she's named after her mom how many girls do you know are named junior i don't think i've ever heard it I think it does happen occasionally, but in, in this novel, which, by the way, is called The Sun Rocket, um, Junior Benet is, uh, goes by the name Junior because she's named after her mama. I, I like that. I think that's cool. So you're querying The Sun Rocket, and you're working on the madness of the queue, uh, and it sounds like uh, Donna Prima is knocking on the back door demanding to uh, come to dinner again, maybe? Well, Maybe. Donna Prima is very much uh, living somewhere inside my cerebellum. I don't know how I fit so much because my cerebellum is really pretty small, Frank. Well, you know, they're doing a lot of things with, 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 with Ram these days, you know. So, <laughs> And there's somewhere in there, there's a thing called a medulla blangata and a couple of other <laughs> Part of being a writer, you know, I mean, it's a solitary existence. You're in your study, uh, you know, or wherever you end up writing, tapping away, mostly by yourself. The only time you really get to interact with other writers or readers is at conferences and bookstore appearances. And I was looking at your website uh, uh, in preparation for the show, and you are pretty active in uh, bookstore and other uh, library and other types of appearances more more active than than most writers i know um yeah i've i've tried to with this one um really make it work um with flight of the fox i've been around um, upstate new york quite a bit and also in new jersey um i've recently been to um, albany and uh, the princeton area in new jersey and a lot of libraries in the immediate area where i'm lucky enough to have a house in sullivan county but also, if, if I may just give a little uh, self-promotion, coming up in February, Frank, I'm going to be in uh, Santa Monica Public Library there in Southern California, and that's on February the 2nd. And then a few days later, on February the 6th, I'm going to be in uh, at the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And oh, um, um, I'm looking forward to moving. That's Mecca there, Poison Pen. Um, and so that'll be kind of a bookend to the premiere of Flight of the Fox, which was at the other Mecca, which is uh, the mysterious bookshop in Lower Manhattan. You know, Otto the, Penzler's place. Otto, the Otto Penzler bookshop. And it, it is now the only uh, bookstore in Manhattan that focuses on crime fiction. There used to be, I don't know, geez, half a dozen. 
but um, thank goodness for Otto Pensler because that's still there. So I'm looking forward to going to Poison Pit in Scottsdale in the Santa Monica Public Library. And, and you're right, it's been a lot of fun going to libraries and bookstores and just talking to readers and, and also reader groups and writer groups. They're the best um, because they they will they've read the book in many cases and they just they just want to talk about the process of writing um, to outline to not outline how do you do your research writers need to do that they as you just said you need to get away from the keyboard and get away from the little closet enclosed space where you sit by yourself uh, pursuing the the art and craft of composing paragraphs. Well, and as you mentioned. Um... You know, as, as writers, you know, part of why you're able to reflect human behavior and dialogue so well is because you pay attention to it. But it, it's almost antithetical because uh, that we spend so much time cooped up all by ourselves in, in a room with a keyboard uh, when you're not interacting. And so it's almost like the, that that observation and, and interaction is the is the wood that goes on the fire. And and then frequently we're not out doing that. So uh, uh, almost risk the fire going out or the perspective being skewed or not as accurate. And so uh, I'm impressed with how often you get out there and, and you know, as fun as bookstore appearances are, they're they're also pretty exhausting. I mean, they if you if you put the effort into them that you should, it's uh, uh, it can be exhausting. I think it certainly can be. I know of certain writers in my general group that I'm friends with uh, who are even far more um, extensive than I am. Um, one lady has even um, takes along her her child and refers to it as SUV schooling instead of homeschooling her child because she travels the country, <laughs> and 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 it's paid off for her um, because I think uh, she's had one bestseller and she's had one novel option by Hollywood, so it's really something I realized with my first two novels, I loved them and they were published by small pub houses and they got a little bit of traction. But if you really want to get traction and meet your readers, you have to get out there and make the effort. And that's just the reality of the day for, I think, all writers. Also, I'm learn, relearning the value of community libraries. They're not just a warehouse for books. They're places where people go for Internet and, and reading and social groups and, and, and literary feedback. And um, some of the programs that are going on in some of these larger libraries that I've been to are just wonderful and uh, I'm very impressed by it, and it's good to get to know and meet these people. I think libraries are are, are incredible places. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad you're getting out there and uh, keeping them keeping them in business. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, um, and and socially as well. In in addition to the literary uh, demands, um, there are all kinds of groups that uh, libraries are allowed to host and meet and. Um, for the purpose of uh, community outreach and, and helping people with whatever their situation in their life is. I'm impressed by it. You know, this podcast is listened to by folks who are writers, folks who want to be writers, readers. Uh, what Do you have any advice you'd give to, uh, to writers? I only have one rule, and it's a rule that I apply to myself and all writers, and that is if you want to be a writer, butt in chair. That's the only baseline need. Butt in chair, fingers on keyboard, four to six hours a day, five, six days a week. It, it, I remind myself of that. So when I when I hang up from you, I'm going to have my butt remain in the chair and I'm going to turn to the keyboard. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think that uh, you absolutely have to have some consistency, whether you're an every day at 530 in the morning guy or gal, or if you, uh, you know, when you're able to carve out the time, you do it in large blocks or, or whatever works for you. You can't think about writing, you know, you have to <laughs> writers write. <laughs> That's by definition. There you go. For better or worse, writers write. <laughs> All you can do is hope that what comes out the final end is actually worth publishing and reading by readers. Yeah, or some of it anyway. <laughs> Frank, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show, and I'll be looking forward to uh, diving into Flight of the Fox. And uh, when, when do you suspect Madness of the Q will be available? Well, um, it, it all depends on, well, I'm finishing the first draft now, and then, of course, it all depends on the good people at Down and Out Books uh, who published Flight of the Fox, and they'll be taking a look at it. And if they like it, then I suppose, uh, I can't really speculate on the timing, but based on what I know about the glacier speed of publishing, <laughs> late 2019, maybe early 2020, so you never know. Well, I'll be looking forward to it. Um, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Gray. Thank you so much, Frank. Okay, folks, there you are. Everything, hopefully, that you ever wanted to know about Gray Bass Night. Of course, Nico, if there's something that uh, people didn't find out in that interview, what can they do? Well, they can go check out Gray Bass Night on the internet or on his website, graybassnight.com. All you have to do is do a little Google work that's not super hard, just Gray Bass Night, right into your Google search, and you'll be able to find him pretty easily. And that's Flight of the Fox, uh, his newest novel. Don't call him Gary. A lot of people do, but that's not his name. It's Gray Bass Knight. Next month's guest, featured guest in January, is Dana King. Uh, Nico, who is Dana King? Dana King is the author of the Penn's River Police Procedurals set near Pittsburgh, Penguin Suck. His newest book is 10-7. 10-7, that's a police code. Uh, do you have any idea what that means, Nico? Uh means out of service i think you would know that since you're you were a cop right yeah in all fairness we didn't use 10 codes but uh that is what my google research told me earlier <laughs> anyway uh i'm sure dana did a little bit too when he did his series let's uh let's find out a little bit more about dana king dana king what city do you live in now Laurel, Maryland. Who's your favorite writer? Probably Joseph Wambaugh. Favorite movie? L.A. Confidential. Favorite TV show? It's either The Wire or Deadwood. Do you have a nickname? No. What are you working on right now? The sixth volume of the Penns River series with the clever working title of PR6. <laughs> what hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing? Playing cards and dice sports games. Uh, so what is your favorite sport? Baseball. Favorite musician? Favorite musician is Charles Schluter. Going obscure, huh? For 25 years, he was principal trumpet of the Boston Symphony. And I studied with him when I was in graduate school, and we're still friends. So, yeah, Charlie's my favorite. Your five-second advice to aspiring writers? Finish what you start and read everything you can. Where would you like to go that you've never been? Utah to visit some of the rock formations. What's your favorite quote? Groucho Marx. Outside of a dog, a book is man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. <laughs> All right, folks. Now you know a little bit more about Dana King, and you will learn even more in January when he is our featured guest. Of course, don't forget there will be some open and shut episodes between then and now. 
in those open and shut episodes, you'll get a chance to uh, learn a little bit about the author and a little bit about the book that we're focused on. But those are shorter, uh, anywhere from 8 to 12 minutes or so, opposed to the longer, deeper dives that we do in the feature episodes. The next of those open and shut episodes will feature Colin Conway talking about his new release, The Side Hustle. That'll drop on December 26th. Uh, then we'll hear from uh, Zach McCain and Angel Luis Colon uh, before getting to our feature author in January, Dana King. That's about it for this episode, folks. I want to thank Gray Bassnight for coming on the show. A uh, very interesting guy. And also Linda Bond and Christopher Moore for some great book recommendations. And I want to thank you for coming on the show as well, Nico. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Um, until next time. This is Frank Zafiro and Nico reminding you. Sometimes you have to be in the wrong place to write crime.